Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. Morning, everyone. Um, it's great to be here with you at Harvest. Uh, it doesn't really feel like a guest speaking opportunity, but just kind of uh, coming over to family, you know. And uh, it's one of the great things about Thrive is we can help one another out. So uh, it's just a great opportunity to be here with you this, uh, this morning. Um, as you may already know, our church over there just down the road at Emmanuel is going through this series in the Gospel of Luke called Encountering Jesus. We're in year three, and we're about halfway through the gospel, so you get a sense of how our church rolls, you know. Um, I took two years for the book of Ephesians, so when I announced to our church that we're doing Luke, everyone went, oh, because <laughs> they realized there were 24 chapters. Um, so I want to share with you, I bring to you a message this morning that I preached at our church just a few weeks ago, and it comes from the gospel of Luke in chapter 13 verses 22 to 30, and the title of the message is No Seat at the Table. Uh, Last time I preached here, I think I talked about demon possession, and uh, this message is no lighter. (laughs) It's a a very heavy one. So I'm just going to keep coming like this with these messages until I'm not invited anymore, and then we'll see what happens, all right? Luke chapter 13, verse 22 to 30, and it reads, He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I don't know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Let's pray. Father, we pray that through the work of your Spirit, you would open our eyes to simply see the truth that lies in these words that Jesus spoke 2,000 years ago. Grant to us the true understanding of the nature of the salvation that your Son preached when he walked this earth, that we might follow in his teaching obey and live, for we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. As a historical figure, Jesus appeared seemingly out of nowhere, an uneducated carpenter from the backwoods town of Nazareth, there to be baptized in public by his cousin, John the Baptist. And out of that obscure beginning, In a very little while, his fame would explode in Palestine. And he would become the most popular figure of his day as huge crowds began to gather 
So much so that quite often they nearly crushed him. And he had to figure out how to escape from them. People were drawn not only to the miracles that he performed, but also to the power and authority with which he taught that was unlike any of their other religious leaders. And yet, here's the paradox of the popularity of Jesus. Despite his enormous popularity, most in Israel didn't accept Jesus' message of repentance and salvation that he came to bring. In other words, Jesus was popular like a celebrity is popular. He wasn't popular so much for the message that he came to bring. Luke chapter 9 verse 51 says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. You can make a strong argument that this singular verse divides the gospel of Luke in half. Everything that follows after Luke 9.51 is a record of Jesus' slow but relentless journey to Jerusalem. His final visit to the capital where he would go to offer his life for us on a cross. And as Jesus realizes that his days are numbered for his earthly ministry, after Luke 9.51, you definitely can detect a change in his tone. There is an urgency, a stridency to his message He's become a public figure. Israel knows his message, but now he calls the people out and says, hey, listen, you got to make a decision here. It's not good enough just to keep showing up to these events and he's watching the miracles and being dazzled by my teaching. You got to decide if you're going to be one of my followers or not. Are you going to be a fan or a follower? And so Jesus teaches from village to village asking them, will you believe? And what's interesting is that this guy stands up and says, are only a few going to be saved? Are only a few people going to be saved? There must have been something in Jesus' teaching that concerned this guy that asked the question that maybe suggests who exactly is going to be saved? according to the teachings of this man. The fact that a Jew is even asking this question is really interesting. Because in Jesus' day, pretty much every Jew assumed that they were saved. They all believed that they were going to heaven. Why? Because our ancestor is Abraham. And we are God's chosen people, so we get an automatic ticket to heaven. It's a freebie for us. It's our birthright. As the chosen people. As a Jew, it was so believed, you had to do something pretty wicked to lose that privilege of heaven. Maybe be a serial murderer. Who knows what you had to do. But it had to be pretty bad. Of course, for the Gentiles, it was another story. There wouldn't be many of them in heaven. But for us Jews, we're going to be there. We're going to be at the party. We're going to be at the great celebration in the sky. But as they sat under the teachings of Christ, I think these Jews began to realize this man's view of salvation is really different from the view of the salvation that we're being taught in the synagogues by all our other religious leaders. According to Jesus, there doesn't seem to be this guarantee just because I was born into the right family of an automatic pass 
to heaven. And so this guy asked Jesus, who exactly is going to be saved? Is it only going to be a few? Because what I'm gathering from your teaching is that not as many people are going to be saved as we think. Well, Jesus' response to this question is not very reassuring. And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Um, Jesus describes salvation as a narrow door. And he seems to confirm this man's worst fears. That many are going to try to find their way, but they're going to miss the mark. They're not going to walk through that door. In fact, that word strive is the same word that is used to describe the rigorous training that athletes undergo to prepare for their games. The actual word in Greek is agonizomai, and that's where we get our modern term, agony. Now, let me ask you, are there some bells going off in your head, some alarm bells? Ding, 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 ding. Um, any of you bothered by what Jesus is saying to this man? Because isn't salvation supposed to be by grace alone? Uh, in fact, wasn't that the whole battle with the Pharisees who taught that it was salvation by your works? And Jesus came to preach that it's about what God does for us, not what we can do for God. It's not about earning favor through our efforts. And yet, here in this teaching in Luke 13, it really sounds like Jesus is talking out of both sides of his mouth. Because now he's saying to them, listen, not many of you are going to be saved, and you need to agonize, you need to strive with all of your might to enter this door because not many are going to make it. And I think you're not alone if you're wrestling here and thinking, I don't get this. What does Jesus mean when he says strive or agonize to enter through the narrow door? Well, I think to fully understand his teaching, we have to see the rest of the story. Although it may not be immediately obvious, the picture that Jesus paints in this brief little parable is of a man hosting a banquet. Um, this imagery would have been very familiar to the Jews because in the Old Testament, there was a lot of banquet imagery used to describe God's final salvation. When he would gather everyone who was saved, like Isaiah 25 is probably the classic one, but there are many others, where God gathers together the saints who are saved, and he hosts for them this wonderful feast. And they all come and dine together in his pleasure. But Jesus throws this unexpected twist in the story of the banquet. And he says, before the party starts, as all the get dinner guests are gathered, the master of the house locks the door so that no one else can come in. And then some others in the village show up to the party. And they see the party going on and they knock on the window they're not pounding on the door, and they're being asked to be let in. And the master comes and says, I'm sorry, you, you're not invited to this party. And he turns them 
away. It's clear that these uninvited guests represent those who are not saved. But here to me is the crucial question we need to ask of Jesus' teaching. On what basis does the master reject those who want to join the banquet? That's the crux of the matter. On what basis does the master reject those who want to join this banquet? You see, what Jesus will unfold through the story is not that these uninvited guests didn't do enough to earn a seat at this table. His message to them is not that you are not born into the right clan. You don't have the right family name. You don't come from the right ethnicity. Therefore, you don't have a seat at this table. But his point is actually rather simple. What separates the invited versus the uninvited guest is simply this. The uninvited guest did not have a relationship with the master. That's it. You either have a relationship or you don't. If you have a relationship, you're invited. If you don't have a relationship, you're not. Um, If you look twice when they ask to be let in, the master replies, I don't know where you come from. I don't know where you come from. And that, in essence, the same thing as saying, I don't know you. I don't know who you are. To me, one of the most disturbing details of the story that Jesus tells is the total surprise and confusion of those who are turned away as uninvited guests. It's clear that the uninvited guests believe themselves that they belong at this party and can't understand why the master is refusing them. You can hear the disbelief, even the indignation of those who the master rejects, saying, What do you mean you don't know me? Of course you know me. Jesus, it's me, Joe. How can you even say that? In fact, the first time that the master tells them that he doesn't know them, they actually use as evidence, come on, we've actually shared a meal together before. I mean, we've eaten together. We've been at the same table. And he says, when you came through my village and you taught in the streets of my village, I was there in the audience. I've heard you preach many times. How can you say you don't know me? But the master is undeterred. He's unswayed by that argument. And he says, listen, I don't know you. Please go away. I don't know who you are. In other words, for those who were locked out of the banquet, there was an illusion of a relationship when in truth none existed. There was an illusion of a relationship when none actually existed. Maybe I could illustrate it like this. A few years back, uh, I was invited to speak at this retreat. And the guy who invited me, I, I didn't know personally, but he wrote me this really long email saying that somehow in his college days or something like that, that a friend of his had turned him on to my sermons Back then, there were no podcasts, but I guess he mailed him a whole bunch of these cassette tapes. (laughs) So it tells you how old this is. And apparently, he listened to a whole bunch of my sermons and said that I had been very influential in his own spiritual formation and uh, would consider it a great privilege if I came and spoke at 
his retreat. So I don't know how you say no to a request like that. So I said yes. So he picks me up at the airport. And on this long drive to the retreat center, we start talking to try to get to know one another. And I'm just like telling him about my life, telling him about my family, my ministry, my mission work in Africa. And as I'm telling him these stories, he's like smiling and like laughing. And he even interrupts me and finishes my stories. (laughs) Because I realize he knows every single one of them (laughs) from the sermons I've preached. And on this like three, four hour drive, it starts getting a little creepy. And I think we both begin to realize it. (laughs) Because he suddenly realized he felt like I was his friend, but we don't really, we've never met each other. This is the first time we're seeing each other. And I think he realized the awkwardness of pretty much knowing my life when in truth we actually had no relationship. You see, there was the illusion of a relationship, at least from his perspective, when in truth there really was no relationship. The roles were somewhat reversed when on a trip to California, Um, I had this opportunity to meet uh, this man, Dallas Willard. Now, uh, if any of you know me, you know uh, the role that Dallas Willard plays in my life. He's probably had a more profound impact on my view of the Christian faith than any other Christian author. Uh, Unfortunately, he passed away recently, but he was a professor of philosophy at USC. uh, And... Somebody, knowing how much Dallas Willard meant to me, uh, a friend of a friend, uh, actually knew Willard. And he said, hey, man, if you want, I can hook up a meeting with him, no problem. Uh, I can ask him to meet you at a coffee shop, and you can actually talk to your hero. And the second I heard that invitation, I was like like a little child. I go, yes, please. You know, like, oh, my goodness. And, um... And then I began to think about it a little more deeply. And I began to envision what that meeting was going to be like. And I realized, what would I even say to Willard uh, beyond the greeting? You know, I'd be like, I really like your books. (laughs) You're a good writer. (laughs) And that's it. I don't know him. I know... I know nothing almost about his personal life. Uh, And I realized that was going to be the most awkward hour at a coffee shop that I would ever have. And so I ended up declining the offer. And I said, it's all right. I I don't have to meet him. Um, You see, there was an illusion of a relationship. But there really was no relationship with Willard. Um. Jesus ends the story with one final detail. He says that those who realize that they lost their chance to be part of the great banquet end up in a state of, quote, weeping and gnashing their teeth. To gnash one's teeth literally means to grind your teeth together. And I don't know, I'm sure there's some dentists here at Harvest, but we know that one of the common reactions to stress is what? to clench your jaw, to grind your teeth, even at night. It conveys not only a picture of great sadness, but of deep frustration and regret from the realization that an opportunity was missed that can never be regained 
again. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Maybe I could illustrate it like this. Back in the 90s, there was this search engine called Excite.com. Anyone remember that? Excite? It was really big in that day. The CEO of Excite.com was a man by the name of George Bell, seen pictured here. In 1999, George Bell was given an offer to buy a little quirky engine, search engine known as Google, for the price of $1 million. Bell rejected the offer because he said it's way too expensive. And the price point was ridiculous. Larry Page and Sergey Brin, the founders, the creators of Google, uh, realized that Bell was playing hardball. So they lowered the price to $750,000. Bell still rejected the deal, saying, no way. Today, Google is valued at over $400 billion, while Excite has fallen to the dustbin of tech history. Anyone still use Excite as their main search engine? How many of you use Google? Yeah, there you go, right? Weeping and gnashing (laughs) of teeth, okay? Let me give you one more story. The 1984 NBA draft. You sports fans already know this story because you're smiling. The number one pick went to which team? Houston Rockets. Who, pit, who picked Hakeem the Dream Olajuwon. Great acquisition. Would go on to be a Hall of Famer center who would lead the Rockets to back-to-back NBA championships. No one questions that pick. But why the 1984 draft is legendary in sports history is the number two pick that went to Portland Trail Blazers who drafted who? Sam Bowie. Turning away the opportunity to draft who? Michael Jordan, whom the Bulls picked up. Plagued by injuries, Bowie would miss 75% of the games during his five-year stint with the Trailblazers, while Michael Jordan would go on to be regarded largely as the greatest basketball player who ever played the game. On its list of 100 worst draft picks in sports history across all sports, ESPN lists Portland's pick of Sam Bowie, number one. (laughs) Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay. Let me say this. Many people live under the illusion of having a relationship with Jesus, when in truth, none actually exists. That's the tough part of this teaching that Jesus is giving this man. Many people live under the illusion of having a relationship with Jesus, when in truth, none actually exists. In other words, what I'm saying to you is this. You can do so many churchy activities. You can show up here every Sunday and put your money in the offering plate and attend small group and do all of these things that makes you feel like you have a relationship with Jesus. 
All of the outward behaviors are there. But the question is this. Does that really represent a relationship with Jesus? Because the truth is, I think for many people in the church, we keep God at arm's length. I want to get a little more specific about it. I worry that in the church today, in the evangelical church in America today, we've reduced salvation to a formula that in essence amounts to making sure that every person in our congregation at one point in their life has said what we could label the sinner's prayer. And that sinner's prayer becomes proof that you are saved, going to heaven. And I'm guessing probably quite a few of you have prayed that sinner's prayer as an entrance into the Christian life. Typically, this is a sort of a shortened version of it, but it'll go something like this. God, I know that I am a sinner and that I deserve to go to hell. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. I now receive him as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, I think this whole sinner's prayer tradition developed in our modern church today out of a hunger for certainty because we want to know, am I saved or am I not? And well, this is a pretty good litmus test. Did you say this prayer at some point in your life? If you did, then don't worry about it. You're good to go. But if you didn't, maybe we can kneel together and say this prayer together. Listen, I'm not saying that it's necessarily wrong to say this prayer or to lead what appears to be a new believer through this prayer. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But my fear is this formula that we've developed in our church gives a lot of people a false assurance of their salvation. Just because I recited that prayer at some point in my life. But saying this prayer is only meaningful if it represents an ongoing relationship with Jesus in which you have placed the trust of your life into his hands. A genuine, trusting relationship with Jesus, in other words, true belief, has to go just beyond having said a prayer at some point in your life. We have to be able to point to your life and say, is there evidence of a relationship with Jesus that is real and tangible, that actually matters? Dallas Willard, my hero, (laughs) whom I never met (laughs) and with whom I have no relationship with, uh, makes an interesting point about what true salvation is by looking at the example of Abraham in the Old Testament. And he says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. We are told in Genesis 15, 6. What did Abraham believe that led God to declare or reckon him righteous? Was it that God had arranged payment for sins? Not at all. The story makes it very clear that Abraham believed God was going to give him a male baby, an heir. And through that baby, a multitude of descendants who had possessed the land promised to him. He trusted God, of course, but it was for things involved in his current existence. You see, the Bible declared Abraham righteous because he believed. But what exactly was the substance or the content of that belief? It was not in some formula for salvation. 
It was simply God's promise to Abraham and Sarah, you will bear a child. Be the father of a great nation. Willard goes on. In the face of such faith, God declared Abraham to be righteous. Does that mean he declared he would go to heaven when he died? Not precisely that. But certainly that Abraham's sins and failures would not cut him off from God in the present moment and in their ongoing relationship in their life together. You see, what Willard is getting at is we're trying to find the formula that we use in our modern church in the story of Abraham. And you, it's, a, it's a real struggle because it's all about having an heir to his family line. Willard presses this point about heaven further, though. And he goes on and he says, but would he go to heaven when he died? And that's the question that modern evangelicals are always asking, right? Of course. What else would God do with such a person? They were friends, a fact made much of in Scripture, as we are to be friends of Jesus by immersing ourselves in his work. No friend of God will be in hell. Now listen. I think some of you may be pretty confused at this point. Every person that has ever walked this earth, including Abraham, needs the blood of Jesus Christ to cover their sins and to be saved. To what extent did Abraham understand the mechanism of salvation? It's really hard to know. Did Abraham ever say a sinner's prayer? Not as far as we know that's ever recorded in Scripture. But the point made is that Abraham was a friend of God. And in that friendship, he trusted God. He trusted in the promises that God made to him. He had faith. Willard closes with this thought. The issue, so far as the gospel in the gospels is concerned, is whether we are alive to God or dead to him. Do we walk in an interactive relationship with him that constitutes a new kind of life, life from above? The eternal life of which Jesus speaks is not knowledge about God, but an intimately interactive relationship with him. The question that I simply want to ask you this morning is this. Has God moved in your life from being an idea that you believe in to a person in whom you trust and have a living relationship with? In other words, are you alive to him and is he alive to you and real to you? One of the greatest truths found in the pages of scripture is that the God of heaven wants a relationship. With each and every one of us. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish. But have eternal life. For he loved the world. That's relational language. Out of his love he sent his son to die on a cross. So that we might have a relationship with him. And that's the simple question I want to ask you this morning. In the midst of all of the religious activity that surrounds your life, is there a relationship of trust there in him? I think one of the most important demonstrations of a relationship with God is prayer. Because in prayer, we move from talking about God to talking to him. 
And let's be honest here. If our relationship was judged on no other grounds than our prayer life, I think some of us cringe, wouldn't we? I kind of want to cringe. But here's the thing. You can do a lot of other Christian activities for a lot of other motives, can't you? I mean, when you're really missional and activist, there is an adrenaline rush to the activism itself that, frankly, you don't really need God. Just humanitarian goodwill is good enough to drive those efforts, isn't it? That's unfortunate, but that's true. Even when you think about a community-based church and all the fellowship and all the programs and all the getting together, the truth is that that could amount to nothing more than a social club. We just like hanging around people that are like us, and we have a good time. But when you get to prayer, when you get to prayer, it sort of strips everything raw, doesn't it? And ask, do you just enjoy spending time with your Savior? Do you enjoy talking to him? Does he matter to you in the course of your Monday through Saturday before another church cycle recurs? I think prayer, in truth, becomes one of the most honest indicators of our relationship with God. In the marriage counseling I do as a pastor, if a husband and wife report that they pretty much never talk to each other anymore, That's a huge red flag, isn't it? There is a problem in that relationship. But the sad thing is, I think that's a pretty accurate descriptor of how we relate to God. I don't really ever talk to him directly. I just expect my pastor to talk to him and tell me the message that he has for me every Sunday. It was interesting, during our Lent season this past Easter, I was going through this Lent devotional from Redeemer Church. And I caught myself doing something interesting. I really enjoyed this devotional. And I would read these little tidbits based on these Bible passages. And it's like some very intriguing ideas were being brought out in this devotional. So I enjoyed it. But one of the things I realized was this. The devotional always ends in a prayer. And I realized I always skip the prayer part. Ah, one of these canned prayers. I'm not going to read that. And, and it exposed something in me. I love ideas about God. I love the philosophical aspects of my faith and being titillated with a new paradigm to chew on. But I realized even in my own life, how often does that actually translate to devotion and worship and surrender and relationship? You see, I think for a lot of us, we talk a lot about God in the third person as a concept. But do we really talk to him in relationship as a person? It is so easy to live your entire life in church and have the illusion of a relationship when in truth none exists. David Paulison writes about prayer. It's hard to pray. It's hard enough for many of us to make an honest request to a friend we trust for something we truly need. But when the request gets labeled praying and the friend is termed God, things often get very tangled up. You've heard the contorted syntax, formulaic phrases, meaningless repetition, vague non-requests, pious tones of voice, an air of confusion. If you talk to your friends and family that way, they think you lost your mind but you've probably talked that way to God. 
Doesn't that capture it so well? Oh, dearest brethren of mine, <laughs> how dullest thou be this day. <laughs> I want to commune with you in this moment, in this hour. Listen, I feel the pain that Paulison is describing. Let's be all real here and honest here. Prayer is hard. I know it because every time we do congregational prayer, when our church members, they come up here trembling. Ooh, you know, dear is heaven. They're, they're panicked. They're nervous, right? What I want to offer you as I wrap up this message today is this idea of recapturing prayer in its essence. Um, this author, Paul Miller, writes about a time he was camping with his children. And as they were walking through the woods, his 14-year-old daughter, Ashley, lost a contact lens. It popped out of her eye, and it fell onto the forest floor. And immediately, Miller told all his kids to freeze, and he said, let's pray. Um, and even before Miller could start the prayer, his daughter Ashley burst out in tears, crying. And she yelled and screamed back at him, what good does it do? I prayed for Kim to speak, and she isn't speaking. You see, Kim is Paul's younger daughter who is autistic and unable to speak. Ashley's sister. And Paul didn't know it, but his 14-year-old daughter, Ashley, had been praying for years that his younger, her younger sister would be able to talk. But year after year, nothing changed. Nothing happened. Kim remained mute. As a father, Miller didn't know what to say to his daughter. And he writes of that experience. Few of us have Ashley's courage to articulate the quiet cynicism or spiritual weariness that develops in us when heartfelt prayers go un, goes, goes unanswered. We keep our doubts hidden even from ourselves because we don't want to sound like bad Christians. We have a vocabulary of prayer speak including, I'll lift you up in prayer, and I'll remember you in prayer. Many who use these phrases, including us, never get around to praying. Why? Because we don't think prayer makes much difference. The most common frustration is the activity of praying itself. We last for about 15 seconds, then out of nowhere the day's to-do list pops up and our minds are off on a tangent. Instead of praying, we are doing a confused mix of wandering and worrying. Then the guilt sets in, something must be wrong with me. Other Christians don't seem to have this trouble praying. After five minutes, we give up saying, I'm no good at this. I might as well get some work done. Complicating this is the enormous confusion about what makes for good prayer. We vaguely sense that we should begin by focusing on God, not our, on ourselves. So when we start to pray, we try to worship. That works for a minute, but it feels contrived. Then guilt sets in again. We wonder, did I worship enough? Did I really mean it? In a burst of spiritual enthusiasm, we put together a prayer list. But praying through the list gets dull and nothing seems to happen. The list gets long and cumbersome. We lose touch with many of the needs. Prayer, praying feels like whistling in the wind. When someone is healed or helped, we wonder if it would have happened anyway. Praying exposes how self-preoccupied we are and uncovers our doubts. It was easier on our faith not to pray. And I... I think the truth is many in the church can identify with Paul Miller's confession, can't we? It's almost easier on my faith not to pray. 
than to pray. And the truth is, I think we can make prayer such a complicating thing with all of these enormous rules and regulations and formalities. But if I can just leave you with one thought, it is maybe what God is inviting us to here this day is to enter into relationship with him by entering into the rediscovery of prayer as nothing more than simply a child talking to a parent and simply letting God know whatever is on your heart, whatever is on your mind, would you share it to him in prayer? Whatever your needs or desires are, whatever your hopes and dreams are, whatever your greatest fears and anxieties are, would you give it to Jesus in prayer? Forget about phrasing it right. Forget about, I think I have bad theology in all of this. I think what God simply desires is to have a relationship with you, to simply walk with you, to talk with you, to hear from you and lay your burdens on him. Nothing is too small or too big to lay to him in prayer. Nothing is too embarrassing or shameful to bring to him in prayer. It was interesting. I shared this with my church. Uh, As you know, through Thrive, we're doing this one tribe uh, church plant in Air Flagstaff, Arizona. And as I was flying out there a few weeks back, uh, my flight in O'Hare got delayed by over an hour and a half. And my connection from Phoenix to Arizona was 45 minutes. So I, I had to rebook the connection. The only connection was at midnight, which would get me in Flagstaff at 1 a.m. And I had three evening meetings lined up that Friday. I needed to be there. So my only recourse was to arrive in Phoenix, ditch the connection, and just get a rental car and drive to Flagstaff. I resigned myself to that. But on the flight to Phoenix from Chicago, I just gave that to God. And I said, God, please, if there's any way, show me your favor. Show me your favor. That was my one prayer. Just, I know I have no right to demand it, but if you would, just show me your favor. We arrived hour and 45 minutes late. And uh, I was sitting at the second to last row of the plane. I was thinking to talk to the flight attendant and say, you know, is there any way that everyone could sit down and I could zoom out there and get first out of the plane? But I was so late that I didn't even bother. And it was filled with elderly people. I'm, I know some of us, I apologize. I'm, I'm, I'm not age discriminating here, but let's be honest. They get out of the plane a little more slowly than others. And this plane took about 20 minutes to deplane. I said, what's the point? I missed the flight. Another thing about flying into Phoenix I discovered, because I've been making numerous flights there to Flagstaff over this last year, is that the connection is always on the other end of the airport, Okay. And I don't know if you've ever flown to Phoenix, but that airport is sprawled out, you know? So you usually have to walk like football fields to get to your connection. So I said, there's just no way. But even as I was leaving the plane, I said, God, could you just show me your favor? I get out and I find out that my connection's right next to me in the very next gate. I walk over there, but the gate is closed. And the guy's got the strip bar over and the door shut. And the guy's just staring at me. We're like looking at each other. And he sees me approach. I got to the one yard line and I'm not going to get in. And I just looked at the guy and I said, I know you're not supposed to do this, 
but I need to be on this plane. I don't even know why I hadn't taken off yet. But I said, I need to be on this plane. Can you let me in? And it looked like he was going to give me the rigmarole and say, no, FAA rules and I can't open the gate and stuff. I have no idea why, but he just opened the gate for me and said, get in. I ran in. Everyone on the plane staring at me because they were like getting ready to take off. I got on the plane and caught that flight to Flagstaff. I talked with guys that fly for a living all the time. And they said, that never happens. No one ever opens the gate for you. I, listen, I don't get every connection. I've missed connections before. But what I'm simply saying is this, is what God desires is a relationship with us, to approach him like a child and let him know what our needs are, our wants, our desires, our fears. He wants to have a relationship with us. The paradox of the narrow road is this. The requirement to get through that door is nothing more than a relationship of trust in Jesus. But the sad fact is that most of us will reject that invitation and may find ourselves one day pounding on that door saying, let me in. Romans 12, verse 12 says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Let's pray. As we wrap up the service and get a time to respond through singing with the worship team, I just want to invite you to a brief moment of reflection as you think about your life. I don't know how many days, weeks, years you've been a member of Harvest. But I want to tell you in no uncertain terms that uh, it's so easy to play the religion game and fill your life with a lot of churchy activities and translate that into a relationship with God. Um, And what's so disturbing about the story that Jesus tells is how many people are going to think that they know Jesus and have a relationship with him when at the end of it all Jesus is going to say I'm sorry I really don't know you there's no relationship here we don't really know each other you know of me you know me as a religious figure as a, a symbol to the church that you went to all your life but the truth is we have no relationship here And as a pastor, it terrifies me to think of anyone under my shepherding care finding themselves on that great banquet day outside those doors, pounding and saying, let me in, let me in. That picture of weeping and gnashing of teeth, of regret, of an opportunity missed that can never be reclaimed. My prayer is that that would not be true of any of us here in this room. It's not about doing heroic measures to prove your worth to be at this banquet. It's not about being affiliated with the right movement, the right church, doing the right churchy activities that gives you a ticket into this banquet. What Jesus says is that which singularly will distinguish those who are invited to this feast and those who are not. Who has a relationship with me? Who trusts in me? Who has surrendered their life into my hands and has walked with me? That is the invitation of God to each one of us this day. My prayer is that all of us would respond positively, saying, Lord, I want to walk with you. I want to trust in you. 
I know I'm going to make mistakes. I know I'm going to fail. I know I'm not perfect. But my desire is to have a relationship with you. I want to trust you. I want to grow in that trust in you and experience the goodness of your love for me every day in my life. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.